Now, several things I, I feel like need to be said when we come to chapter 3 this morning because it's a little bit different uh, in character from what we find in the other chapters. And one of the things many Christians are prone to do is to have a tremendous appreciation and a desire to know about prophecy, but not necessarily understand the purpose that God has behind it. And when we come to the book of Daniel, we need to remember that we're talking about the sovereignty of God. We're talking about his sovereignty over humankind, Gentiles and uh, the nation of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. And so we want to uh, think about that as we look at chapter 3, because it is emphasizing in a different way the sovereignty of God. The other thing I want you to remember as we uh, go through this study is the outline. I try desperately to come up with outlines that we can uh, be aided in remembering, remembering by the words that we use. And when we talk about Daniel, we're talking about chapter 1. Chapter 1 is God's sovereignty over Daniel and his friends' captivity. Chapter 2 through chapter 7 deals with uh, the Gentile world and God's sovereignty over the Gentiles. When we come to chapter 8 through the end of the book, we're talking about God's sovereignty over the Jewish world. So everything that's in here is about the sovereignty of God. Now, the other thing that I want you to see as we read a portion of the text this morning is the emphasis on worship. And there are three things that I want us to zero in on today. When I first started looking at this, I thought, well, can I come up with enough material, frankly, to deal with 45 minutes? When I got through, I realized, hey, I've got so much stuff here that we need to help people to see and be reminded of that I don't know if I can do it in 45 minutes. So we're going to try this morning because I think it fits together as a unit. And that's why we want to try to do the whole thing. Now, follow along as I read, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of it which was 60 cubits, 18 uh, inches times 60. You're getting a, a stature that's 90 feet tall. And then, and it says, and its width was six cubits, or nine foot wide, nine feet wide. And notice what it says. And he set it up on a plain in Dora in the province of Babylon. Then, Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, before I go on, most people are inclined to think the statue is an image of uh, Nebuchadnezzar. That's good, and I don't necessarily disagree with it. But I want to say that the text doesn't tell us that it is him, okay? Now, notice in verse 2, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to the assembly of satraps and prefects and governors and counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the providence to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now, Another thing I want to say to you, and we're not going to read the whole chapter, because there is repetition of terms 
and concepts throughout this passage. It's, it's a, almost an elementary approach to the narrative. And so we need to recognize that as you work your way through it because he is trying to emphasize this is what Nebuchadnezzar wants, but what really counts is what God wants. Okay? Now notice, we come to verse 3 or to verse 4. And the herald, that is, he calls for all these people to come in, and then the, his spokesman loudly proclaimed, verse 4, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, men of every language, that at the moment <clears throat> you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psalter, bagpipe, all kinds of music, what are you to do? You're to fall down and to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Then this consequence for disobedience. But whosoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast in the midst of the furnace of the fire. Now, there's the charge. You're going to worship this image, and if you don't, you'll get punished by being thrown in the furnace of fire. Now, that tells us about the dedication in verses 1 to 3. It tells us about the adoration that is to occur in verse 4 to 7. Then the accusation that is made against Jews, and in particular the friends of Daniel, beginning at verse 8 through verse 12. Notice, for this reason, at the time certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Now, they named them to the king, remind him he's the one that made the decision that this was the consequence. And then in verse 12, it identifies the people they have in mind. There are certain Jews among you that you have appointed over the administration, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you, and they do not serve your gods, plural, or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, as a result of that, we then see litigation against the Jews by the king. Notice verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, uh, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and then these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar, verse 14, responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you have not served my gods or worshipped the golden image that I have set up? Then he says, Now if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn and horn, you will worship the image that I have made very well. But, if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God, watch that, what God is there who can deliver you from my hand? Okay? That's a very low view of the gods. They had various levels of power and capability. And before it's over, he's going to acknowledge that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the most high God. He's not denying polytheism, but he is saying, well, he's the most high God. But he soon forgets that, by the way. 
But right now, he becomes aware of it. Notice they are now going to have a chance uh, to go ahead and avoid condemnation. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego answered and said to the king, O king Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Observation. You already know what our position is, I think is the implication. You No reason to ask. You should have anticipated this is the way we were going to respond. Then notice it says, if it is so, our God, if you decide to cast us into the fire, if it be so, our God whom we serve, watch it, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, notice that, but if not, he uh, d- let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then notice verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. And his facial expression, notice that, was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, there's the litigation that goes on. The final judgment, they're cast into the fire, into this furnace of fire. Then in verse 24, we see uh, that uh, the reaction of the king that caused them to be put in the fire, a second reaction that occurs, Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished. He stood up in haste. He responded and said to his high officials, Was it not three men that we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loose and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth one is like a son of the gods. Okay? See, polytheism again. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door, verse 26, of the furnace of blazing fire, and he responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Bendigo, come out, you, you servants of the Most High God. Come out now. As a result of that, they come out, and the text tells us that uh, they are not harmed in any way. They don't even have the smell of smoke on their clothing, which reminds me. My wife and I went to a national conference, and one of the deacons and his wife we'd become very close with, we decided we'd camp out. So we built our fire to keep warm, and we built our fire to cook our meals. And then we put on our coats and ties and went to the conference, and the odor just permeated. I mean, we never anticipated. We didn't think about that. Well, these people didn't have that problem. There was no smell of smoke on these fellows. Now, as a result of all of that, the king then changes his tune. Therefore, verse 29, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything uh, offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to rubble or rubbish as a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God 
who is able to deliver this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the providence of Babylon. Now look up here. We start out the throne into the furnace of fire. It ends up the king blesses them and prospers them. Point. God is sovereign even over, watch it now, unplanned persecution. The king never thought about getting at the Jews. That wasn't the plan. Nothing in the text seems to imply that at all. But then he had to deal with it as best he could as the king, but God protected uh, those Jewish men for their faithfulness to God. Amen? There's the sovereignty God of God over unplanned persecution. Now, I told you there's a lot that I want to deal with in this chapter. And the way to do that, class, is to look at three things that are a unit. First, we want to talk about the religion of Nebuchadnezzar. Secondly, we want to talk about his anger. And third, we want to talk about uh, the response of Daniel's three friends when they were facing persecution. Now, let's start by looking at the religion of Nebuchadnezzar. Notice, if you will, go to verse 5, and at that moment you hear the sound of the horn and flute and so on. Uh, you will fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. There's the command given by the spokesman for the king. You're to worship the golden image. Now, one of the things that we always try to observe, class, when we are looking at the interpretation of a passage is, is there repetition of a point or a word? In this chapter, it begins in verse 5. You have worship mentioned 11 different times, 11 times. You'll notice that you find it uh, here in verse 5. You find it in verse 12. You find it in verse 14. You find it in verse 15. You find it in verse 18. You find it in verse 25 and 29. All of those are doing what? They are emphasizing the religion of King Nebuchadnezzar and that period in which he lived. Polytheism. The idea that there are many gods. But when it's over, in verse 26, as we've already pointed out, he talks about Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the most high God. A lot of gods, but the most high God is Yahweh, the God of Israel. Polytheism. That's the king's religion and also the religion of the day. Now, the other thing that I would like for you to look at with me for just a moment is when we talk about all this multiplicity of gods, and if you look up here for a second, you, I want to make this observation. There are multiplicity of gods today. They may say they are Christian, or they may say they're Jewish. They may say that they're Muslim, but there are all kinds of varieties along with all of the other religions that are floating around in our world. How did that happen? How is it that the God who created heaven and earth 
has lost credibility in the lives of a lot of folk. Well, I want you to hold your place here in Daniel because I don't want to get lost with time, but I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 for a second or two, and we'll make a couple of observations that I think will help us. Romans chapter 1, and we want to look at verse 18 in the text. 18, notice what it says. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice that. Men suppress the truth. It doesn't fit into their theological grid. They can't think in terms of this sovereign God over everything. So they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Why? Because that which is known about God is evident, and I think the translation here is in them. It could be translated among them, but in them, I think either way you come out with the same thing. There is this innate understanding that there is a higher power out there somewhere, okay? So they suppress the truth because that which is known of God is evident within them. For God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes and his eternal power and nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now that takes me back to the illustration I've used many times, I think, at this church, But throughout my ministry, it made a major impact on me. When I was 16 years old back in Richmond, Virginia, I used to play in the vacant lot next door. I'd play war. I had my bunker. I had my machine gun and all of that kind of thing set up. But at the end of the day, I would go out to the cliff overlooking the ravine next to us, and I would watch the sun go down. And as a 16-year-old boy, I would say, God, I know you're out there. We didn't make that sun. You are out there. I don't know anything about it. I want to know you. And that's what Paul is talking about here. There is evidence that God exists. How? Look at the world around you for crying out loud. Okay? That's the idea. Then notice, and even though verse 21 of Romans uh, 1 For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They didn't develop an intimacy with him. But they became futile in their speculations. See, they didn't get to know God. They rejected truth. And so they end up coming up with their own concepts of what God is like. Their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, Professing to be wise, they became fools. Okay? Now, when you take that back to our text and you say, okay, that's what's happened in the past, and the result of it is you have this speculation about all kinds of God, and we didn't read about it, but it says they corrupted the image of God into incorruptible man and beast and creeping things. They came up with all kinds of concepts of God. In their attitude of wisdom, they became fools. Amen? Now, what we have in the text then is the consequence of that 
in Nebuchadnezzar's life and in the kingdom over which he reigns. Now, question, how do we reach the conclusion there is a God and then reach the conclusion that there is a God we call Yahweh, the God of Israel? Well, I've I've taken some notes and put them together, and I just want to share a couple of those things with you. When I was pastoring, I used to have a handbook for new members. And one of the things that we discussed in that was uh, how do we come to the conclusion there's a God? Well, I want to share with you that there are at least three presuppositions to our Christian faith. Okay? It begins, first presupposition, when we talk about a presupposition, a supposition, something we suppose to be true uh, beforehand, we draw this as a basic uh, rule of thumb. Uh, the first one is, there is a God. How do we know? Remember Romans chapter 1? Look at the creation of the world. There is a God. There's evidence there's a God. But that first presupposition uh, can be uh, amplified somewhat. And, uh, for example, we have the cosmological argument. And I'm not going to go through all of these. But this one, for example, cause and effect. How did this world, this creation, get here? There had to be an adequate cause, okay? So we're talking about this higher power. There's got to be a God somewhere. Teleological argument. Uh, if you drive your, drove your car to church today, that car was put together by all thousands thousands of pieces, and the gasoline engine propels you so that you can get to the church. In other words, a car was built by mines, that were developing it and organized everything so that you came up with power so that the the, uh, engine propels the car and we can get where we want to go. That's intelligence, okay? We look at the world around us, and what do we have? We have a sun that's just at the right spot so it keeps us warm. We have a moon that reflects at night so that the psalmist say, when I consider the heavens, the work of your thing is the moon, the stars that you have created. What is man? It's unbelievable that you're concerned about us because of that great world is out there. I'm going through therapy right now. And you know what? I've discovered the human body is an amazing thing. Amen? So there's your concept. There's got to be a God. There's the moral argument. All of us have a sense of right and wrong. We don't agree what it is necessarily, but we know there are some things that are right and some things are wrong, and the world has turned them around. That which is evil, they've declared to be good, and what is good, they've declared to be evil. They messed it up, but everybody is struggling with what is the moral right thing to do. There's a God out there that came up with all of that kind of scheme. Then there, not only is there the presupposition there is a God, but secondly, there's a presupposition that he must reveal himself. Why? Look at the mess we've created. We've got all these gods. Man can't come to the right conclusion. The incompetence of man argues for a God that must reveal himself. Or we're never going to get there. In our, with our own mind. And the second thing is that when we talk about the incompetence of man, we've got to talk about the transcendence of God. 
I understand my dog at home, and he doesn't think I do, but I do. Why? Because I'm smaller than he is. But he doesn't understand all about me. Why? Because I'm smarter than he is. We're incompetent, but God is transcendent. God, if he is going to to let us know anything, he's got to tell us. There is a God, and he must reveal himself. And the third presupposition is that he has revealed himself in the Bible. Okay? So when we talk about uh, this thing of God, we need to understand all of us, child of God, look at me now, all of us work with presuppositions. And when we finally come to the conclusion there is a God, he must reveal himself, then he has revealed himself in this book, then we're on the way to the right path. Amen? That's the moral uh, uh, or the, the, the uh, basis for what we call theism as opposed to polytheism. The other thing that I want you to know is that everybody who is serious about the religion gets really upset when somebody uh, infringes on or ridicules or is offensive toward their religion. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's not any different. And as a matter of fact, he has an amplified problem because he's used to having his way. He's the sovereign among men. The issue, however, is that when this kind of thing happens and these young men uh, do not follow his command, he gets upset. Now look at the text with me, and I want you to see what it's saying. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's not only religious, religious, polytheistic in his thinking, but he also is enraged by people that would disagree with him and not follow his command. This man has a temper. Now, I've told you that all of us are infected with this sin disease, and we are infected in different ways and struggle with different things. And one of the things I've admitted openly uh, for years in my own ministry is I have a temper. So I have to walk with God. I have to spend time in the Word. I need to spend a lot of time praying and asking Him to help me to be sweet and all those kinds of things because if I don't, my old nature will come out. Now, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, all of that. I have to walk in His uh, re- in relationship to him in intimacy or I'm in big trouble. And I want to say again, when I admit that, some of you say, you, Dr. Talley, you're not supposed to be like, oh, well, let's talk about what it is in your life that you don't talk about. Amen? All of us have got him. Now, temper. This guy really got a temper. Notice in verse 13, rage and anger. Then if you'll hold your place and go back to chapter 2 and verse 12, you'll find out he has a problem. Because of this, the king became indignant and very furious and gave orders to destroy all the wise men. That is, when they couldn't tell him the the dream and so on. He got angry. So in chapter 2, we see it. We see it here in chapter 3. 
in two different places. Notice, if you'll go down to verse 19, what does it say? Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath. Uh, another way to translate that Hebrew is rage. He was roaring mad. Okay? Uh, and then his facial expression was altered toward Daniel's friends. So this anger comes out on his face. Now, that's interesting. Uh, I taught speech for uh, three years in college, and then homiletics I taught preaching for over 35 years. And so I know a little bit about communicative skills. And one of the things that uh, has become clear when you do the counseling part of your preaching, and that's what we're doing when we preach, we're trying to do preventive counseling, that kind of thing. But the, the, the issue that I'm after is that this passage tells us something that's a truth that we've recognized. He was filled with wrath and his facial expression changed. Here's what's taught when you look at the textbook. 7% of the communication of anger, 7% is the words that are spoken. But then it says, that tells you in the textbooks, 38% is not the words, but the tone of voice when you use it. Okay? That's 30, uh, 38%. Then 55% is the nonverbal behavior, the expression on the face the face becoming red with anger, the blood vessels coming out on the neck and all of those different kinds of things or someone starting to swing at someone else. The nonverbal behavior. Everybody with me? That's how we communicate. Words, tone, and behavior that is nonverbal in nature. All right, then the question. If that's true with Nebuchadnezzar, it's also true with us. Some of us have more of a problem in this area than others. But we need to know something about how to handle it. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar has never had anybody confront him with it, nor has he had any desire to change his anger and rage. So I pulled out a couple of other notes that I thought might be helpful. When you talk about Anger, it is a, listen, it is a legitimate emotion. God can become angry. God can become uh, uh, enraged. He can express himself in uh, nonverbal behavior as well. But what causes it? Let's talk about some of the causes. What are the causes of anger? For Nebuchadnezzar, it was disobedience to his commands about his stature. What are the, some of the things that you and I get angry about? Sometimes it's God, or it's the church, and even the pastor. Not our pastor, but other pastors. Okay? Then notice, it could be our children. Have you ever gotten angry with your kids? Uh, you know, in the literature, it has, to, it has to tell you, be careful, don't you respond in any kind of punishment uh, out of anger. You settle that issue, 
And then you deal with problems. Uh, another one, those in authority. You ever get upset and even angry at our politicians? And lately, I have a lot of problems with that. Sometimes it's our spouse. So the one I love the most is the one I can get upset with the most. My wife and I are a paradox. We're a couple of doctors, but we also are paradox. We're total opposites. And everybody thought, there's no way John Talley and Betty Talley are going to survive in marriage. Well, 56 years later, say, we told you so. But does that mean we never have a problem? No, 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 no. You've got a marriage problem if you don't uh, uh, be honest and open and even ventilate some in a proper fashion. Our mates, what about injustices that occur? Let me give you one. I subscribe to Sirius XM Radio. They have a channel on there that I just leave it on. It's called Escape. And it brings, it uses no commercial, all the music that I love to listen to. Now, I listen to GIB and I listen to Johnny at 12 to 1 and those kinds of things. And I have certain station, uh, preachers I listen to. But this is just background music. This is the way I take my nap in the afternoon, you know. Escape. You know what they did the other day on the 13th of this month? They took Escape and put it online. And I'm thinking, okay, why do I have the radio if they're going to put it on my computer? And I caught myself just becoming, can I confess, very you understand what I'm talking about? This is life. Sometimes, folks, we get upset with ourselves. You ever done that? I am so stupid. I am so dumb. Why did I do that? Ever done that? Or is that just me? It's all of us, isn't it? And Daniel is telling us about Nebuchadnezzar. And he gets upset with people in his realm and his religion and so on. And then uh, there's others, people we don't even know. Ever heard of road rage? That's a problem today, isn't it? And then uh, inanimate objects. Oh, my. You ever used a hammer and hit the wrong nail? Oh, you know, there are different reasons why we get angry. Now... The other thing I want to share with you, and I don't want time to get away, is that when we talk about a problem that surfaces that causes us to get angry, way back in the 70s, I think it was, Jay Adams, y'all may or may not have heard of that name, but Jay Adams came out of a book, Competent at Counsel, and he revolutionized the way evangelicals look at counseling. And he talked about anger. And he talked about how people normally react. If you have a problem and you get angry, you're going to do one of two things. One, you're going to become like a volcano and just explode. Or you're going to do the spiritual thing and you're going to suppress it and internalize it and not say anything. 
problem. The volcano will explode instantly. The pressure cooker builds and builds and builds until Sunday morning the pastor looks at you kind of funny, you think, and the lid comes off. Why? Because stuff has been building up in your life and this was the last straw. And it's over nothing most of the time. Everybody with me? So they're the two normal ways. What we want to do is reach the biblical middle ground. Emotion of anger ought to cause us to attack the problem, not people and so on. Everybody with me? Now, how do you do that? I want you to write down a couple of passages of Scripture that I think will be helpful to you. If Nebuchadnezzar could have heard these things and gotten saved and applied them in his life, maybe he wouldn't uh, have all this difficulty with anger. But number one, four solutions I want to share with you. First, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26 says, uh, we're to use the emotion, be angry, but don't sin. Okay? That means you're going to have to redirect your anger in some way from either the volcano or uh, the pressure cooker. You're going to have to attack the problem. Be angry and sin not. Don't let sin go down on your wrath. Get it settled. My wife uh, gets upset with me. She has to forgive me. You know, she just has to. She always doesn't want to, but eventually my wonderful, wonderful wife will forgive me. Okay? Uh, then there's another passage. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11. You know what it says? We're to pray for each other that we will be patient and long-suffering. Now, some translations will have a different word like uh, persistence or uh, even sometimes um, some of them translate patience. But long-suffering is the best one. The reason for it is it is a Greek compound word. Makros, which means long, thumos, which means temper. You put together the two, long-suffering means don't have a short temper, you have a long temper. Now, how do you get there? We pray for each other that it'll happen. Everybody with me? That's Colossians chapter 1. I'm to pray for you and you're to pray for me. I've confessed my sin. Now, you're going to have to pray for me that I will learn to be more long-suffering. All right? Then there's another one. Proverbs chapter 15 in verse 1. A soft answer turneth away wrath. All you do is when you sound off, the other person is going to sound off, then you're going to sound off more and so on. Okay? Soft answer turns away wrath. And finally, in Proverbs 22, verse 24 to 25, you know what it says? The text says, don't hang around with people that are angry. When you do, you're going to learn from them. You're going to imitate them. So don't get caught in that trap. Okay, that's the second one. That's all I'm say about that one. Now look at it. God is sovereign in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He is sovereign in our life. And so we need to deal with uh, anger in the proper way because God's in control of what is allowed to come into my life from other people or inanimate objects or whatever. 
Okay? Now, we see the religious polytheism in this text emphasized. We see the anger of the king uh, in this passage. But notice there's one other thing, and this is so important and so helpful to many Christians. Notice what it says. Shed, verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and answered and said to the king, O Neb, you do not need to give, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this matter. You know it. Then, then he says, they say, if it is so, if you cast us into the fire, if it is so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. You see that? He is able. And then he says, and they say, and he will deliver us. Now, that's the way we're supposed to think. He will. Now, here's your first principle when you're running into adversity. The first principle is God's security on our behalf. He's going to take care of us. So, if you throw us in the furnace, fine. He can deliver us and keep you from doing it, and that's what we think he's going to do, the security. Everybody with me? When you go to the passages of Scripture that so many go to, the Lord is my shepherd, and so on. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me, thou rod and staff, they comfort me. He will comfort, but that doesn't mean sometimes we won't face death in the valley of death. Okay? So when we talk about the secure that it is ours, or Psalm 91, you will see God's enmity on the wicked. Thousands will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not approach unto you. That's Psalm 91. Is that always true? No. Because the text goes on to say, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But, watch it, but if he does not, let it be known. The second observation that we see on the react, by the reaction of uh, Daniel's three friends is that they, they are aware of God's promises of security, but they're also aware they're not always uh, going to be operative in our life. He will allow us to face some kind of difficulty. And uh, we, we need to look at that. I think about when I'm in, I was in Vietnam, and I talk about this all the time. There are two events, major events in my life. One was the African-American guy from Georgia. He was studying in a, a correspondence course on prayer at Moody Bible Institute while he was in my battalion where I was serving as chaplain. And the bottom line is, one day he was on point, and a sniper caught him right between the eyes. Now, was he trusting God and planning on God taking care of him? Yes, he was. But did God protect him in that particular case? No, he did not. And that's the sovereign plan of God. You understand? This is God's sovereignty over humankind. I think about another one. It's African-American guy, as a matter of fact. He was so excited about his wife had just delivered their first child, a little girl. And then we got into a firefight 
and I held him in my arms while he said to me, and both of us knew he was dying, Chaplain, I'm never going to see my little girl. I can still hear it. But that's an illustration. God going to take care of us. But sometimes his sovereign will is to allow things to happen to us. You with me? Then there's the third one. Not only the principle of security and the principle of adversity, but finally the principle of loyalty. Look what the text says. But if he, even if he does not, latter part of, uh, first part of verse 18. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up, no matter what. This is the day the Lord has made. I am going to rejoice, and I'm going to be glad in it. I'm doing all this therapy now, and it's beginning to help me. But I get so discouraged sometimes, and I have to remind myself, this is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice, and I'm going to be glad in it. He didn't protect me from that physical ailment that I am facing. Everybody with me? Now, you say, well, that wasn't a very exciting chapter. I want to deal with prophecy. No, God is saying Daniel is about God's sovereignty and one of the things that proves it is the prophetic element but the text is about God being sovereign everybody with me all right let's pray together father thank you so much for the opportunity of looking at the text today help us to profit from it I pray that my stammering lips will be overlooked and people see the truth of what is taught in this text And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.